This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Hey there! I wanted to catch you at the top of the episode to let you know that my Patreon page is changing its name and URL. Rather than the page saying Stephen Trigar and the URL ending with Stephen J. Trigar, the page is fully transitioning over to The Composer Chronicles. All members of the Patreon page will continue to enjoy all the same benefits as before, including early access to ad-free versions of every episode, access to the Patreon podcast unscripted, and all other benefits one can find at higher levels. So, if you are listening to this episode and you hear me reference patreon.com slash Trigar, that is no longer a valid URL, as I have changed it over to patreon.com slash thecomposerchronicles. I hope you enjoy, and I hope to see you on my Patreon page. If you haven't already heard, this past Friday, the Patreon podcast Unscripted was re-released. Unscripted is a podcast that gives listeners a behind-the-scenes tour of the making of this show, The Composer Chronicles. If you love The Composer Chronicles and want some deeper insight into the pieces discussed, how I chose the topics that month, and some deleted scenes of my conversations with various guests, go to my Patreon now to sign up. With the re-release came updated theme music by Andrew Gavin and new cover art by myself. Go to patreon.com slash Stephen J. Trigar to become a member today and get access to Unscripted for only $1.50 a month. Again, that is patreon.com slash Stephen J. Trigar or click on the link in the show notes. I can't wait to see you there. In the little village of Dikanka, Ukraine, Solika, a witch and widow, stands outside her home, looking up at the pale moon. As she stares, the devil walks up beside her and asks her to help him to steal it. Solika's son, Vakula, recently painted an icon mocking the devil, and stealing the moon will instigate his plan of keeping Vakula away from his beloved Oksana. Solika agrees to help the devil enact his plan, and so he conjures a terrible blizzard to both mask their deed and to prevent Vakula from making the trek to Oksana's house. With the moon now taken out of the sky, Oksana's father Chubb and the deacon are now left in total darkness on their way home. Blinded by the lack of light and the raging storm, the two are now lost with no hope of finding shelter, but the storm is of no issue to Vakula. He easily finds their home and discovers that Oksana is inside and alone. He quietly enters and watches her admire herself in the mirror. When Oksana realizes he's been staring, she teases him for being such a romantic, but he ignores her jokes and says that he loves her anyway. Suddenly, Chubb comes barreling into their home, startling Oksana and Vakula. With Chubb's body bundled up in winter clothing and covered in snow from the storm, Vakula does not recognize him and chases him out of the home by striking him across the face. Infuriated by Vakula's behavior, Oksana demands that he leave at once, but Vakula pleads with her, saying that he didn't realize it was her father. 
In anger, she pretends that she is in love with another man, and Vakula leaves dejected. Carolers come walking by as Oksana watches Vakula walk away, and Oksana realizes that she still is in love with Vakula. Back at Solaka's home, she is alone with the devil, flirting with him. They are interrupted by a knock on the door. The devil hides in a sack by Soloka welcomes the mayor, Pongolova, into her home. He confesses his love for her, and his confession is interrupted by yet another knock on the door. The mayor also hides in a sack, and she welcomes in the schoolmaster. The same thing happens when Chubb now comes in to confess his love for Soloka, but he is also interrupted when Vakula comes home. His mother asks him to take out all the sacks to make room for the Christmas festivities, and so he does whatever his mother asks him to do, but not before questioning how heavy these sacks are. He passes by Oksana, who is admiring a pair of cherovichki that her friend is wearing. Listening in on their conversation, Vakula declares that he could find a much better pair, and she mockingly promises to marry him if he does in fact bring her the Tsarina's own cherovichki. Vakula knows this is an impossible task, and continues on carrying the sack containing the devil. While Vakula had been conversing, the mayor, schoolmaster, and Chubb slip out of their sacks, and the carolers tease them for their attempts at being mischievous. Vakula carries his sack to a riverbank, and stops for a moment as a group of Rusalkas tempt him to throw himself into their waters. The devil, Wanting his revenge on Vakula, jumps out of the sack before Vakula can jump into the river and bargains with him for his soul in exchange for Oksana. Furious at the devil, Vakula seizes him by the tail and leaps onto his back. He commands the devil to fly him to the Tsarina's palace in St. Petersburg. Upon their arrival, the Tsarina is throwing a Christmas ball in her palace, and Vakula asks her to grant him her cherovichki. With this wish granted, he gets back onto the devil's back, and they fly home to Tikanka. On Christmas morning, the villagers celebrate in front of the church, all except for Soloka and Oksana, who are worried about Vakulu's mysterious disappearance. Out of nowhere, Vakulu appears in the crowd holding on to the Tsarina's Cherovichki. Oksana admits that she loves him no matter what, and that he didn't need to get these slippers to prove his love. Chubb gives the young couple his blessing, and together they join the festivities. This is a story told in Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky's often forgotten opera Cherovichki. While it is often categorized as a separate opera, Cherovichki is simply a revision of his earlier opera, Vakula the Smith, written in 1874. In both cases, Tchaikovsky believed that this opera was one of his greatest works, and he would do whatever it took to show the world how good it was. From Alexandrian Media, this is The Composer Chronicles, a podcast that delves into the stories of composers past and present. I'm Stephen Schweiger, and this is episode number 27, The Devil in the Details. Music
Tchaikovsky's story with Cherovichki starts in 1873 when the Russian Musical Society announces that they would be hosting a competition for the best operatic setting of Nikolai Gogol's story, Christmas Eve. The libretto had already been compiled by Yakov Polonsky at the request of the Grand Duchess Elena Pavlovna for the composer Alexander Serov, who had ceased all work on his opera The Power of the Evil One to work on this new project. However, Serov died before he could even begin writing the opera, and the Grand Duchess aimed to have the opera completed in his memory. Although she had started the competition, she died in January of 1873 before it could be carried out, and so the Russian Musical Society took up the project and announced their competition to several composers for their consideration. So, in March of 1873, Tchaikovsky wrote to the vice chairman of the society, Prince Dmitry Obolonsky, that he was highly interested in this project. However, despite perfectly understanding the rules of the competition, he expressed several concerns in the letter to the vice chairman and asked whether or not Polonsky's libretto demanded a score of separate numbers, like the popular Italian opera style, or the more modern style of opera that had no separation in the music except between acts. When the competition rules were officially published in May of that year, everything except for Tchaikovsky's one specific question were clearly addressed. Tchaikovsky took this as the composers having complete creative freedom. The only thing the rules specified was the closing date for the entries in August of 1875, and that the subject must be Gogol's Christmas Eve. Composers were free to alter Polonsky's libretto to fit their musical needs, and the winner would receive a cash prize and the publication rights to the opera. Despite his immense excitement to write Vakulola Smith, Tchaikovsky was occupied with prior engagements until May of 1874. Once those engagements cleared up, he traveled to his friend Nikolai Kondratiev's country estate to begin working on the opera. Once he began the opera, he worked furiously to get it done. Part of him was enthralled by the brilliance of the subject matter, and the other part of him was mistaken by the deadline being in January of 1875 instead of August. By July, he had nearly completed the sketches to the entire opera and traveled to Osovo to begin the instrumentation. By September, everything but the piano score was completed. He requested the services of Eduard Langer and Alexander Razmaj to make the arrangement, but he was unhappy with their work and took the project on himself. Only after he submitted the opera to the Russian Musical Society did he realize his mistake. Now he had to wait for a whole year to know the fate of his new work, a work that he is noted calling his precious child. His love for the opera, as well as his own anxieties and insecurities, would soon set in, and Tchaikovsky would only make matters more difficult for himself. We'll pick back up after the break.
what would a world without music be like? I certainly don't want to know. This podcast would not exist. Luckily, we don't have to find out what that world is like. I do a lot of listening in a day between all of my favorite music and podcasts, and it's not just for entertainment. I'm constantly doing research for this podcast and switching back and forth between apps to listen to a podcast episode and then a piece of music can get tiresome if I'm trying to quickly switch back and forth. From an episode of Hey Riddle Riddle, to Stravinsky's The Firebird Ballet Suite, and then to Lady Gaga's latest album, I can listen to them all on Amazon Music whenever and wherever I want. I start listening when I get into my car, and then when I get home, I switch over to my Alexa while I cook dinner for me and my fiancé. Listeners of this podcast can join me in listening to all of the best music and greatest podcasts on Amazon Music Unlimited right now when you sign up today at getamazonmusic.com slash the Composer Chronicles and get your first 30 days for free. You can get unlimited access to any song and do all of that listening without any ads. So again, go to getamazonmusic.com slash The Composer Chronicles and start listening on Amazon Music Unlimited today. The success of Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 2 and the performance of his opera, The Ruprichnik, made him a household name in St. Petersburg. Despite the minor success that The Ruprichnik was, Tchaikovsky was quite displeased with his work on it, declaring it to be a major embarrassment and detrimental to his reputation. While I shall save any more information about The Ruprichnik for a future episode, I will say that it had mixed reception amongst the public and his colleagues soured Tchaikovsky's relationship with the opera, and Vakula was to be his saving grace. After Tchaikovsky completed Vakula in 1874, he submitted it anonymously under the Latin motto Ars longa vita brevis, meaning art is long, life is short. There's no real explanation as to why he submitted it anonymously other than his own chaotic state of mind at the time but it didn't take long for the cat to be let out of the bag. Tchaikovsky was so embarrassed, which slowly developed into impatience, that he approached the opera in St. Petersburg via Eduard Napravnik and Gennady Kondratiev to ask that Vakula be withdrawn from the competition so that he could produce the opera himself. Tchaikovsky was desperate to rid the memory of the Oprichnik from his and everyone else's memories with this new opera, but his request was denied. Tchaikovsky was forgetting. Part of the prize was the rights to publish this opera, and staging the opera before the results of the competition would surely cause a legal dispute, not to mention the fairness to the other contestants of the competition. Despite everything, Tchaikovsky was the first place winner of this competition. He received 1,500 rubles and the rights to publish the work. 
Many of his colleagues reached out to him to congratulate him on such a fine achievement and even offer their input. One of these colleagues was Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who not only wrote a detailed letter, but also met with Tchaikovsky in person to make the opera even better. Rimsky-Korsakov is clear that his revisions to the music were solely due to the libretto, and given the circumstances, he may have done the same that Tchaikovsky did. Tchaikovsky was so proud of his work on Vakula the Smith. It not only confirmed his own beliefs that he was a good composer, but now colleagues were praising him for his gorgeous score despite the haziness of the competition rules. In early to mid-December of 1875, just shortly after receiving the award, Tchaikovsky received official notification that his opera was scheduled for the performance in the following season at the Marinsky Theater in St. Petersburg. And so, on November 24th, or December 6th, depending on which calendar you're looking at, Akula the Smith received its premiere under the baton of Eduard Napravnik. Even Cesar Cui, who had previously damned the Oprichnik, stated that Vakula the Smith was going to be an enormous success after watching the dress rehearsal. You probably know by now, having listened to almost 30 episodes of this podcast, that right when something seems to be too good to be true, it's just the calm before the storm. That same sentiment applies here, too. The premiere of Akula the Smith was a major flop. With the exception of the overture and the first duet within the first two acts, nobody applauded. There was laughter during the scene with the men jumping into sacks to hide from the others entering into Solokos' home, but still no applause or curtain calls when the scene was over. After the opera was over, Tchaikovsky had several curtain calls, but mostly to just hiss and boo Tchaikovsky right back off the stage. The second performance of the opera was a little bit better, but the failure that was the first performance lingered in the air. While Rimsky-Korsakov had offered his assistance to making edits to Vakula, Tchaikovsky wouldn't touch the opera again until almost 10 years later in May of 1884. Even after the scrutiny that Tchaikovsky faced with the public, he truly believed that Vakula the Smith was to be his greatest achievement. In a letter to his benefactress Nadezhda von Meck, he states, quote, This is one of my favorite creations, but I am not blind to the fundamental shortcomings which afflict this opera, and prevent it from remaining in the repertoire." End quote. His determination paid off. While on a trip to Paris in the winter of 1885, Tchaikovsky began mapping out all the things that he was to change within Vakula to prepare for a new revision of the opera. And by April, the opera was once again complete. Now, all he needed was a new name. He asked his brother Modest, who was a writer and wrote the librettos to a few of Tchaikovsky's works, to help him come up with a new name. The Cool the Smith, Christmas Eve, and the Empress's Shoes were off the table. It had to be something new and never used before. And so, The Cool the Smith was renamed Cherovichki. The staging of this new opera was to take place in the 1885-86 season, but the production was rescheduled for the following season with Tchaikovsky's consent, due to the prolonged illness of the opera's anticipated conductor, Ippolit Altani. As a compromise for moving the performance, he was to conduct the premiere himself of his newly revised creation and shepherd it into the positive life he believed it deserved. In fact, that premiere was Tchaikovsky's conducting debut and the start to his career as a conductor. While I don't blame him, 
Tchaikovsky was quite nervous to conduct the opera. He was afraid that the musicians would chide him for being a terrible conductor, but rather they were deeply impressed by his work. Now, Tchaikovsky was standing backstage, waiting for the moment to be ushered into the pit orchestra to begin the performance. When instructed to enter, the world seemed to stop for a moment. He walked up to the podium like a stiff automaton, and when he situated himself at the head of the orchestra, the audience exploded into applause. Wreaths were handed down from the stage, and the orchestra played a flourish to honor their esteemed conductor. It just goes to show you, if you put in the time and effort and you don't give up, you're destined for greatness. This episode of the Composer Chronicles was written, researched, and produced by me, Stephen Trigar. The music is by Daryl Banner. Other music and resources used in this episode can be found in the show notes or by going to alexandriamedia.org slash the Composer Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, jump on over to Apple Podcasts or to iTunes and leave the show a rating and a review. Ratings and reviews are super helpful to the podcast, because they help new and potential listeners find the show. If you've really enjoyed this episode, consider becoming a member of my Patreon page. For only $1.50 a month, members get early access to ad-free versions of every episode of The Composer Chronicles. Plus, they get a Patreon-only podcast titled Unscripted. There are more benefits depending on what level you give at, so head on over to patreon.com slash to discover all the cool stuff you can get when you sign up. Next week, British composer and orchestrator Danny Howard joins me as my special guest, where she will describe what it's like to be a composer of new music who is trying to reshape the genre and make it more accessible to audiences all around the world. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.